Welcome back to the Music History Project. This month we're showcasing Mr. Personality himself, Lloyd Price, in episode two of three in our Rhythm and Blues series. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I am Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rosner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Hey, hey, this is exciting, you guys. Part two of three as we delve into the pioneers of rhythm and blues here on the Music History Project. I'm so psyched to have my great team. Suzanne, welcome. Thank you. Alex. Hi, everybody. And my son, Jonah. Hello. Jonah did all the pre-production of this podcast, and I'd love to give a shout out at the beginning here to the gentleman who does all the post-production, which is a lot of work editing all of us and all of these clips together, and that is Alex. Thank you very much. What an icon. Yay. Yay, Alex. Oh, I think he's turning red. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about, as Suzanne said in the intro, Mr. Personality, based on one of his big hits, Lloyd Price. Jonah, what was your impression of Mr. Price? He has stories for days. <laughs> we have a podcast just on him for a reason because he has so many fascinating things to talk about. We're about to go into just the first few stories from dancing to his uh, um, to the jukebox in his mom's fish shop mm-hmm. to um, one of his most popular songs, Lottie Miss Cloudy. And uh, let's get into it. You know, what's really very fascinating to me about Lloyd Price is that he was at the perfect place at the perfect time without a doubt and we're going to be talking about that as uh, this podcast goes along but I just want to say off the top that this guy had more talent than just about anybody else I ever met and a great amazing personality to go along with it so we're going back to March 2016 in Pound Ridge New York and our interview with Lloyd Price my parents was Baptist uh, members, and you'll hear singing in the house almost all the time, but it had nothing to do with uh, with what I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure it was an influence. It was. I, I'm sure it was. And um, my b- mother always had a piano in the house. And before that, you're probably too young to know what they play, how they played music. With the thing, it was we call it a graphophone, okay. but they call it a graphanola. You know where you wind it, and you got these big records, and you put them on there, and that's when we heard music. There was no radio stations. There was no categories when I was a kid. You heard music. You know what I mean? And I think the my introduction really to loving music was Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan and his Tempity Five, you know, Caledonia, early in the morning. And then after that, it was Pee Wee Creighton, the Ligon Brothers. And music started to come along. But before that, it was all gospel. You know, uh, and our music day was Sundays. Uh, you heard church stations and people preaching. 
You know, but just a whole different world from what it is now. There was no videos, no television. All, the outside world was the radio. And we uh, hardly got that because there was 1,000 watch stations. A telephone now is 1,000 watts. <laughs> so you can imagine what we heard on the radio. Nothing that sounded like everything was coming from Mars or from the moon. But uh, it was a good time, and it some, somehow I got influenced by what I heard and loved it because I've always been a lover of music. And... Um, if I had to look back and do it over, I probably would do it the same way. <laughs> That's fantastic. Did you play an instrument as a kid? No, actually, I didn't think about playing an instrument until maybe I was about 12 years old. And that, like I said, that piano had always been in the house. And it seemed like every day I pass it, it calls me, you know. <laughs> And one day, uh, we got our first black disc jockey on a new station in New Orleans, WBOK. I could hear it right now. And his name was uh, James Smith, but he called himself Okie Dokie Smith. 240 pounds and nothing but soul, you know, coming direct. And he, was, he wasn't even from uh, New Orleans. He was from uh, Laura, Mississippi. And he'd come on, he said, Lord and Miss Claudia, eat your mother's homemade pies and drink Maxwell House coffee. It was the first Maxwell House instant coffee commercial. And he had no regular schedule. You know, he was on uh, two or three times a week. You had to figure out when you was going to catch him because it was a new station. And Hank, uh, Hank Williams, Roar Acuff, Gene Archery, Roar Rogers, uh, Mini Pearl, the Grand Ole Opry was the thing that ruled the stations in the South. Mm. So the only time we really got a chance to listen to music was on WLAC from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I think it was Gallatin Record Mark, you know. Mm. This was the first real introduction where we could hear regular blues or rock, what they can now call rock and roll music. We heard Amos Milburn. We got Charles Brown and T-Bone Walker, uh, Pee Wee Creighton, Gatemouth Brown, you know, and uh, who else? It was two Gatemouth Browns, the one in Texas. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and one from Alabama. So, but they didn't come on until 10 o'clock at night. You know, and being young, we had to try to ease the radio on because we was not allowed to turn the radio on. That was the, that, all this was that adult business. There was no children uh, no teenagers, no such thing as teenage music. So, but when uh, my mother had a uh, fish shop where she would sell sandwiches on the weekend, and in that shop there was a jukebox. And what got me hooked is when they go and play a record, I would dance to it, you know, and they would throw dimes and nickels on the floor. And I sat there all night dancing. But I learned every record on the on the on the jukebox, and so I learned to sing them and dance. On, and they would, I got to be entertainment in the shop. <laughs> and uh, that all of that drew me to this piano. It seemed to have been a way out of Kenner, Louisiana, where I'm from, for me. 
if I could be like these guys on this jukebox, I got a shot to get out of here. <laughs> and so I think without real big elaborate ideas, that was one of the way I was thinking as a kid to learn how to do something to get me out of my hometown other than volunteering for the army. <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. Yes. That was it. So I stopped banging on his piano. And as I said about this jet jockey, he said, Lordy Muscardi, eat your mother's homemade pies and drink Maxwell House coffee. Well, for that, that just stayed on my mind all the time. And in the meantime, Fats Domino was the newest thing on the scene. He had this record. They called me the Fat Man. Oh, man. You know, by us not having any experience outside our hometown and the state, Fats Domino was the deal. I mean, that was such a huge record. And we being teenagers, now being able to go to a teenage club, because they had teenage clubs then, and we hear Fats Domino and all these records I named to you, they're building a jukebox. But Fats Domino became the leader. Why he became the leader? He was from New Orleans. We knew who this was. He wasn't some distant guy like Louis Jordan. You know, he was there. We knew who he was, and we started rallying around that New Orleans music with Professor Longhair and uh, 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 Guitar Slim, and a bunch of these guys was around, you know, and uh, Smiley Lewis. And we started listening to them, listening to them. And I learned how to play the eight-bar blues on the piano just by listening to these guys. Everybody... Nobody was trained except Dave Bartholomew, I think. And uh, everybody played by ear. If you hear something, you learn how to play it. Mm. So I learned how to play this eight-bar blues. And one day I was sitting at the piano thinking about my little girlfriend, Nellie Dukes. She left. She quit me. So I was, Lordy, 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 Miss Claudia, girl, you show. I was thinking about her and putting these words together. And as we now know, uh, I, I, Dave Bartholomew stopped in the shop one afternoon and heard me playing this because I did it every day, you know, trying to learn how to put things together on the piano. And he came in the shop to get a sandwich, and I didn't pay much attention to who would come in. I'm banging on the piano. I looked around. And I saw it was Dave, because he was like the biggest thing around New Orleans. He produced Fats Domino. You know, all this language I'm using now, I didn't know then. He was like a A&R man. He came over to the piano and he said, play that again for me. So I played it again for him. He said, I kind of like that. Uh, there's a guy coming in from California. His name is Art Root. He got specialty records, a gospel label. But being that Fats Domino seemed to be, you know, playing music that kids like, they want to get somebody a little younger than Fats Domino, and this could be a hit record. Now, all this is Chinese to me. I, I don't know what he's talking about. Now, he's such an image, you know, to me, and in, in, in that era, uh, I'm almost too shy to look at him. 
So he asked me to play it again. So I tried to play it again for him, nervous. He said, okay, when this guy come, I want him to hear that. So I didn't think nothing of it. Three or four weeks later, I got a call from him again. My mother called said, there's a guy named Dave Bartholomew on the phone who want to talk to you. I go and talk to him, and he said, there's Art Root is here. I'd like for him to hear that song. He asked me to come down to Cosmos, J&M Music, down on North Rampart Street in New Orleans, so he could hear this song. So I did. When I got there, Fats Domino was at the keyboard. Savado Doucette, uh, Earl Palmer, Lee Allen, uh, uh, Herbert Hardister, C.J. McLean. Now, I know who these guys are because I'm now kind of like following in music. I had seen Dave's band. I seen him on the stage with him. You know, when he come out to play a prom or something like that, I would always be there. And I see these great musicians and here they're all in the room. So I met Art Root. He asked me to sing this song for him. I did. He said, wow, this could be a smash. It's another word I never heard before. So he asked me what key was it in? And now this is really knocking me off. What key? I have no idea what he's talking about. Dave said, go over and sing it to, sing that to Fast Domino. So I go over and sing Lord of Miss Claude to Fast Domino. He says, it's an A flat. <laughs> this is all brand new. So I go and uh, he said, okay, you go over there behind that curtain and uh, sing the song. And we're going to play. He told the band what to do. I'm just listening. So he says, okay, when Fats Domino make an introduction, I never heard of that before, even though I've had a little band. My brother Leo and I had had a little band playing around my hometown. We knew three or four songs. That was about it. But we'll play them over and over and over all night long. You know? <laughs> no, no idea about how you set things up. So he said, okay, Fats Domino going to do this. You do that. And then you sing it down three times. And Fats going to come in again. And Herbert Hardison will go. I said, okay, fine. Now, nervous. And I'm a, I've never done any of this before. No rehearsal. I don't know what it is, rehearsal. So I do exactly what he tell me. The difference is I'm repeating the verses over and over and over. I don't know how to make that song. I don't. He said, you got to have a beginning, a middle, and an ending. You can't sing the same things over and over and over. <laughs> so when you hear, I'm going to tell my mama, you stayed out all night long. These were just things I thought about as I ad-lip going down with Lord and Miss Claudia, which turned out to be the record that started the youth movement, not only in America, but around the world. That song, I never heard a playback. The first time I heard it was on the radio. Okie dokie was the guy who was playing it. And he said he had played it many times that day. He was going to play it one more time. And he says, this is by a little kid out in Kenner, Louisiana. And I knew it had to be me. I, I didn't know what I sound like. So, man, after that, the whole world broke loose. You know, the youth movement started. Kids who had never touched each other or spoke to each other in terms of race, black and white. 
that was the music to start bringing everybody together. And since that time, uh, I think it was March 1952, the world changed. That music, well, have galvanized the rest of the world. Lord and Miss Claude have been recorded 178 times. Uh, Elvis recorded it, I think, 21 times in long. Everybody who's important in terms of rock and roll includes Billy Joel, the Beatles, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino. They all, Little Richard, they all recorded this song, Lord and Miss Claudia. And uh, that was the beginning of rock and roll. And that's how it started. That is fantastic. What a story. Unbelievable. Was that the first time you met Fats? Was it actually in the studio? That was the very first time. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, I was a fan of Fats, yeah. from the Fat Man. And the first time I met him in life, and scared to death, is when he played piano on Lord and Miss Claudia. Mm. Well, my subsequent five records after that, Fats Domino, that same band, for Oh, 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 Restless Heart, and I Wish Your Picture Was You, all these hits when, when I was a teenager was done by Fats Domino and Dave Bartholomew's band on specialty records. Earl Palmer was on those as well? Earl Palmer was on every session. Wow. Yes. That's fantastic. The Bigfoot. That's right. <laughs> I got to meet him once. What an honor. What an honor. Oh, he was he was a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. They uh they play they was on Lord of Miss Claudia. And it was funny because it was funny to them because they had never recorded a teenager before. I had no idea. Well, we had no business knowing anything about the music business, because it wasn't for us. It was an adult uh, business. And ad adult enjoyment, it was for their listening. When we heard music, it was what our parent heard. And uh, Lord and Miss Claudia changed all of that. You mentioned Elvis having recorded that. Did he change the lyrics? Well, he didn't know the lyrics. <laughs> 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 he kind of did what I did. He had lip. All he knew was the hook. Lordy, 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 Miss Claudia. <laughs> there were two great records of it that I really, really liked, besides the many times it was recorded. Paul McCartney did a fantastic job, and Joe Cocker. Hmm. I, I really liked those two, you know, for my own personal self. Yeah. Yes. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, now... One of the things I was a little unclear about was after these recordings came out, which, as you mentioned, and I think rightfully so, really started the ball rolling for rock and roll music, then you went into the service. Is that right? Yes. Well, which all never should have happened. Uh, all my life, I really wanted to go into service because that was a ticket out of Kenner, Louisiana. I had, it was eight boys of us. I had five brothers in the service already. I had one in the Coast Guards. Why? Because he could not be in the military service. It was illegal for to have more than four sons or nephews or anybody from one family. So I knew I never could volunteer to go in. I knew I never would get drafted unless I went to route my brother, Julius went, was to try and get in the Coast Guards. At that time, was not really a part of the military. They was just like a service company to the military. Well, when Lord and Miss Claudia hit, 
And it's start to integrate the South, integrate America, period, when all these young kids start to dance and touch each other, I became a threat to the Southern Dixocrats, you know, who at that time controlled Washington. It was the Southern Dixocrats. I later found out that the guy who was after me, who was the chairman of the Armed Service Committee, his name was uh, Richard Russell, a senator from Georgia. And uh, he insisted to my draft board that I go in the service because my music was illegally integrating the South. Black kids and white kids are not touching, speaking, skating together because disco was not the thing. It was skating. It was skating rinks. They start skating together. Skating rinks start allowing them to mix, to skate together. And that became a problem. And it all was on my music. So they draft me in the army with me being the sole supporter of my family and of my father at that time, his hip was broken. I was the sole supporter of my family with five brothers in the service. I was drafted, making six, totally illegal because of my music. Well, um, I was not sad. I wasn't happy with that at all. I was not a happy camper. The booking agent, they always there trying to keep me from going out. They got me a deferment. For 30 days, that's all they gave me, 30-day deferment. And then I had to go, shipped off to Camp Chaffee in Arkansas. And did 23 months and 13 days, would not let me out. 13 months in Korea. But what it did, it made me a better person. The first record I heard when I got to Japan which was the processing office for career at Camp Drake. The first thing I heard in the PX was Lord and Miss Claudia. I couldn't believe it. And then all the soldiers want my autograph, the young soldiers, black, white, whoever they were. I didn't realize that this record that I'm thinking is locally. Now I've been to New York. I've been to Apollo. I've been to Chicago, the Regal, Baltimore. I've been to all these places, but I'd never been overseas. That was just more than the mind can handle. When I'm hearing all my music in the PX in, in Japan, and Japan now what was eight years later, torn out from the bumming down in Hiroshima. You know, I went all down through there, all I'm hearing, and especially I went to a little town in Japan where I stayed for 30 days before being shipped off to Korea. Not far from a little area called Beppu. Japan. I said that long enough to learn how to speak a little Japanese and stuff. I was, in a sense, I was happy. I'm seeing a new part of the world. I'm hearing my music. When I got to Korea, it was the same thing. So they had to find something to do for me other than being a lineman. The 07300 made me a clerk typist. I'd never turned it, never seen a typewriter. <laughs> it put me in special service. And I became, I think they call it a TINE uh, service officer. But I wasn't happy about that at all. So when I got back, my music had changed. You know, I'm gone two years and 13 days. Um, well, not quite two years. Yeah, two, yeah, 23 months I was gone. Almost two years. And the music changed when I got back. Pat Boone, uh, Ray Charles. James Brown, Fats Domino, now he know that formula. 
that I was doing, he's playing. I think the first thing he did was I'm walking, you know, kind of like taking those triplets. And the, so I was almost out of the box. I had to find something completely different to do with what I had invented. That was just a few of the first stories of Lloyd Price. <laughs> yeah, he talked about his big, big hit from 1952. Now think about this, folks. Uh, Elvis showed up really prominently on the scene in 1956 with Heartbreak Hotel. Bill Haley and the Comets had their big hit, Rock Around the Clock, in 1955. Okay, so what was in 1954? What was in 1953? What was in 1952? Lloyd Price, that's who it was. Amazing. He was way ahead of his time as far as uh, rock and roll goes. And I think so many people want to categorize him only as rhythm and blues up until the fact that these other folks came over, like Chuck Berry and Little Richard, um, to name just a few, that really perpetuated what we call rock and roll now. But without a doubt, that guy was uh, instrumental in the early sounds and influence of rock and roll. And that song, I think, almost all by itself did most of that. And wh why, I think, is because of what it represented at the time. And that was the burst of the New Orleans rhythm and blues sound, without a doubt. And that really had three elements to it. It had Fats Domino on piano, it had Earl Palmer on drums, and it had the trumpet playing, arranging, songwriting ability of Dave Bartholomew. Put all those together in the studio with this singer who had this great idea to write a song called Lottie Miss Clottie, and rock and roll is just about to be born. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Um, and I think it's just so compelling to, to think about how sort of simplistic it was, but how influenced. I mean, he went to the Army right after the song was released, right, Jonah? Yes. And while he was away, people are imitating him. People are developing that sound in a different way and than he originally intended. The time he came back, he was really hailed as a hero. And... The hits that he had afterwards were not in the same vein and style, but they were very, very popular indeed. So an amazing career, and I can't wait to hear more. I think he, he just said so much when he said that he was forced to go to the military because of um, the chairman of armed services said that he was illegally influencing the South because of his music. And so that just says a lot that he was forced to do something because he was um, influencing people too much. Well, it was wrong, but I think he came out of it. And that's what's really kind of amazing. I think you're right. He did reflect on sort of missing out on all of the hoopla. He was away when these his biggest hit was being listened to in jukeboxes and at sock hops and influencing everybody. But he definitely felt the praise of it later on when he returned. So with that, let's get back to our interview with Lloyd Price. What are we going to hear next? He's going to talk about Camp Records and another record company, the Double L. Awesome. Here's Lloyd Price. So now I'm living in Washington, D.C., you know, and come up with some new music. So as one day I was driving, I'm listening to all this music, and my music actually don't fit, you know, to what's happening because all these guys got it now. I'm just going to be another runner in the race. 
I'm listening to what they call a good music station. And I hear this, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So, and I said, oh, just because you left and said goodbye. <laughs> Off again. That was the first, I believe, ballad, Dick Clark. Now who's, this is 1957. He's on the American Bandstand. I was invited to do Just Because on American Bandstand with the new record company, ABC Paramount. They're just coming in. And, uh, well, the rest of it is history. I did that, bought a nightclub with that money. I, I'm never thinking I'm going to have another hit. They called me and I loved music so much, I started my first record company, KRC, where I had Just Because. And ABC had the distributing rights for that one record. So after that record died out and there was nothing else, they called me and asked me, did I have anything else? Well, I said, yes, I do, I do. I have a song called You Need Love because Clyde McFadder, he is the thing now. You know, all these new artists. And I just didn't see my way through that. So Sam Clark, who was now the president of ABC, said, why don't you come in and let's talk about it? So I went to New York and discussed with him a way back. I said, I got this new song that I've, I've written, but it sounds a lot like Clyde McFadden. You know, it's called You Need Love. So I sung it for him. He said, oh, this is great. Uh, let me set you up with Don Costa. And he set me up with Don Costa, who was the arranger. And he had all these strings and singers. What a great song. So he said, but we need a B-side. Now, that's the same thing happened with Lord and Miss Claudia. When I recorded Lord and Miss Claudia, I didn't know you needed two sides for the record, two songs for the record, A and the B-side. So I made up Mailman Blues, ad-libbed it for a Lord and Miss Claudia, and I made up Stagger Lee, which I knew. Uh, I had played this in Korea for the field grade officers as a play, as a mini play. I had wrote it to do something different for the field grade officers that I was not doing for the privates. The night was clear and the moon was yellow, and I had people acting this out. And the lead, and he laughed. He said, Are you going to put that on the back of that great song? I said, yeah. One take. And he wrote all the things as I played it on the piano. He wrote it. And Stagger Lee wound up being one of the biggest records I ever had. <laughs> Just a throwaway song. Tell me how the story came about. How did you come up with that? With Staggerly? Yeah. I had heard bits and pieces of that. You know, Shackley, my father. With, uh, I never understood, you know, being patois. I never understood what he was saying, really. <laughs> but I heard Shackley, my uncle's this, Shackley. It supposed to have been a true story, which I later found out it was. But I decided to make this a real story you know, make it visible where people could see it. So as I was in career, how it came about, I was in the Seoul Hospital trying to get out of the Army. I never quit trying to get out of the Army. So I was signed in the Seoul Hospital as a, a heart patient. And it was bummed out, so there was no trees. You know what I mean? And... Uh, as you look out the window, that night, the moon was very clear. I could see all of the mountains, and it never was quiet in Korea. You could always sound like they're hammering, building something. 
24 hours a day. Bang, 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 bang. I guess that's why now they're in the top 20 countries in the world. But um, I looked out the window. I said, the night was clear and the moon was yellow. I saw this, but there was no leaves because there was no trees. <laughs> and there was no dogs because I believe all of those dogs, I understand that they was, you know, they was on the meat tray. <laughs> and the leaves came tumbling down. And I was standing on the corner. Now, where I got that line from, in New Orleans, uh, there was a song that Professor Longhair, and anybody who could make up lyrics in 8 Bar Blues, it was a song called Junkie New. So I was standing, I was standing on the corner with my reefer in my hand. Up came the policeman took my reefer out of my hand. That's where it came from. <laughs> That's exactly uh, what it was. And I made it up from that period of things that I had heard and that melody that I had heard played so often in New Orleans. That's super fantastic. Now, I understand that some of the lyrics were actually... Um, censored like the gambling in the dark is that true that's very true dick clark would not play the record because Lee shot billy that was it Lee shot billy he said i cannot play that i can't play that to america what do you hear now on the radio <laughs> he wouldn't play Lee shot billy so i I, I seem to think that that was the first rap record because of the story. Here's these two guys in a fight in a gambling game. It was really what they now call gangster rap. That same kind of story. Only difference is they're talking it. <laughs> and that sure ushered in a whole slew of story songs after that, didn't it? Oh, yeah. After that, it was just... Uh, it was amazing what happened after that. Uh, almost 10 years after that, Sly Stone, Everyday People. You know, I would think that was the next period, you know. And, of course, uh, uh, Blowing in the Wind. Uh, there was a few more of those story songs, you know. And, uh, well, now that's all it is. Incredible. Yeah. So were you surprised when Staggerly became such a big hit? I was. Because I was so sure You Need Love was the hit. I wouldn't I wouldn't let him turn it over for two months. And there was a disc jockey from Spokane, Washington. He called up uh, uh, Larry Newton, who was the general manager at ABC, and said, you're on the wrong side. Staggerly is the hit. So he called me. He said, you got to turn the record over. You got to let us turn the record over. Staggerly is a hit. And he did. And within that week, Staggerly had sold 200,000, I understand, one afternoon, a few days after they turned it over. It went on before it slowed down. It was number one seven weeks. And I think it stopped at three and a half million, three and a quarter million record, something like that. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> wow. Yes. Now, was this about the time that you were involved with Kent Records? The yeah, that's KRC. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, in 19... When I got out the Army, yeah. Oh, okay. I put a record company together because being in the 07-300 uh, 
uh, MOS, that was the adjutant general, a bunch of young lawyers. And they couldn't understand why I was so popular and why everybody wanted to come there to see me and get autographs. So I was telling them I was in music business. And they said, well, you know, after many, many conversations, they said, well, music business is song business. Song business is publishing business. It's like a magazine. You have to own the rights to it because that's the thing that's got the legs, the song, not the record. And so they said, when you get back home, make sure that you will go, you own your songs because these are the things with the legs. They'll be recorded over and over and over and you'll continue to get paid. Whereas when the record stops selling, you don't get paid. So the first thing I did was put together uh, KRC. Now, what Kent Record Companies was Kent came from Boskent, who was my tutor. And he was my tutor before I went in the Army to finish my high school education because the record hit when I was about seven, 18 and a half years old. And I went to finish my high school. So I had a tutor would travel with me. So when I came back, he said, don't call it your name because people would not, people probably will find something wrong with that. You know, no artist has ever done that. Why don't you call it Kent Corporation, which was his, <laughs> which was his name. You know, when you're not, when you don't know, you don't know. <laughs> you know, he was making himself heard, you know, on my record company. It was my record company, but it was Kent Corporation. <laughs> I didn't know anything about stocks and all that stuff, you know what I mean? This guy was a real piece of work. <laughs> so did you remain in control of the songs? Yes, I did. I changed the songs and, and put a company together. Uh, it's almost incredible what happened. My battery was down in my car. It was cold one morning and my battery was down. The first thing I saw was Delco. So the first publishing company I had was Delco Publishing. <laughs> <laughs> All things are reciprocal and related. You know, during that time, there were an awful lot of artists who gave up their songs. They didn't, they didn't know any better. They weren't educated, I guess, enough on the publishing side or maybe were told, here's a Cadillac, sign this over. And did you did you sense any of that? No, actually, I have to say the art group, what he did ask me, when they first recorded me, they didn't have a contract with me. But the record took off. I mean, just really took off like a rocket going to the moon. He had Dave Bartholomew to call me and tell me, don't sign nothing with nobody. And he called, don't sign nothing with nobody. And Frank Pena, who was the biggest nightclub uh, in New Orleans, called me and said he wanted to be my manager. So now, I'm always kind of a progressive thinker. I don't know where I got that from. I was talking to my father and mother, and they said, what you need to get is a lawyer. Now, I, no, what is a lawyer? I never... So this guy, Charles Levy, they had seen his name in the paper, who was an attorney, he had won a big treatise. I went to see him, who was a white lawyer. I believe I was the first black guy ever in his office in New in Metairie, Louisiana. So he said, I told him what the case was, and he said, listen, I'll handle it for you, but you got to give me a retainer. What is that? 
a retainer. He wanted a $500 retainer. I'd never heard of that. $500, my father's house only costs $800. <laughs> and he wanted a $500 retainer. Fortunately enough, I had work at the Dewdrop where I was getting $50 a night. And I had $500 and I gave him and he started handling the business for me. So uh, it got me 3% without root. When all the record company had to do in those days was let a record get played on the radio. The artist would have been satisfied with that. He would have gave up everything to hear his name on the radio. That's how it was. You know, there was no other way to communicate. There was nothing. Uh, like I said, the outside world was the radio. And if you get to hear your name on the radio, what does that mean? That mean that you got to be a big man in town? All the little girls would come up, you know. Oh, I heard your name on the radio. And that was almost as big as Joe Lewis fighting, you know. <laughs> that was huge to hear your name on the radio. So the Cadillac was really a big deal. They didn't really have to do that. Give them a steak sandwich or something. <laughs> they would have gave the songs away. But fortunately, Art Group promised me what he did do was took my songs and me as a writer asked for hire. He didn't hire me to do nothing, but that's the paper that I signed with him for hire. I was hired for three cents, and he took 97% and I got three of my own material, which was, you know, now as I go back, regress and think about it, it was ridiculous. But at that time, 3% of anything was better than nothing. That's crazy. <laughs> Today, you know, it's almost unimaginable that anybody would do that. But then that was the very beginning, you know, where people was buying houses for $800. And here's a guy giving you 500 you know, $100 a night to work. That was just incredible money. When the minimum wedge was $0.65 cents to $0.75 cents an hour where grown men with big families was not making $8 a day. I mean, and you getting $50 a night? I mean, give me a break. I mean, who wouldn't have taken that deal? <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about Double L? Double L, <clears throat> how Double L came about is when Robert Bateman, Robert Bateman, was who a producer at Motown. He produced Please, Mr. Postman. And uh, he brought me a demo by a kid named Wilson Pickett. I liked the demo. And my contract was getting it to be an end at ABC. <clears throat> so I took it over to ABC and played Wilson Pickett. You know, if you need me, call me. I thought it was a great record. And the way Wilson rapped in it, people have always said, baby, how much I love you. So they thought they thought I was crazy. They told me, listen, you should continue being an artist. Quit trying to be a producer. This is junk. We don't want that on ABC. That's what they told me about Wilson Pickett. But in the meantime, I think Robert Bateman had took the record to Atlantic Records. Ahmed Erdogan called me and said, Lord, we hear you got this record on this kid, Wilson Pickett. Let us have that record, you know, and we want to record Solomon Burke, you know, with that song, and we'll give you a back end with Wilson Pickett. 
Now I know the language and the record business, back end and all that stuff. I said, no, 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 no. I believe that Wilson Pickett is an artist. I believe he's a hit. You know, and I'm going to put together a new record company. I'm going to call it Double L, which was Lord and Logan. Logan, who was my partner. So we called it Lord and Logan Music and Double L Records. Wilson Pickett, we put Wilson Pickett out. We sold 100,000 copies between Brooklyn and New York. It just was a major record. I don't think Atlantic, they tried to cover us. No matter, uh, no matter how big a company it was, Wilson Pickett was the best artist. And will to prove it, the history proved who was the best artist. Mm. Yes. So that's how Double L became about. That's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we skipped one, one sort of minor song in your career, and that's the one that gives you your nickname. We've got to talk about that. Personality. Personality. I was on my way to Pittsburgh and got a call from Larry Newton. Said, listen, before you go to Australia, you got to get us another song. We got to have a record out before you go to Australia. So I had been playing around with this idea in my head about everything and everybody has a personality. Hmm. People walk with personality. They talk with a personality. They smile with a different personality. All the thing I had to do was find a turnaround. And I think 20 minutes on the turnpike, on my way to Pittsburgh, I had to turn around. And that was over and over. I don't know why I think that that hook came from Wade in the Water. Wade in the Water. Wade in the Water, children. And I somehow I connect that with over and over. I tried to prove my love to you. Because you walk with personality, talk was the easy thing. Once I found just how to make that work, you know, get that hook in there. And it, I think I, it came from Wade in the Water, in my mind. Yeah. That's amazing. Came back to New York, one take. Don Costa did the arrangement, and one take in the studio. It was done, and I went on to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> And you've been performing that ever since, haven't you? Ever since. You know, it's been recorded in 17 different languages. And many, 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 many different recordings on it. Uh, from, uh, uh, oh God, I can't begin to name the different people. It was the Pat Boone Shivy Show, Patty Page. I mean, on and on. You couldn't go on a cruise ship without hearing personality. No island. People had to do personality. Every artist in Vegas had to do personality. Wayne Newton closes shows with personality. It just was an amazing song because it was so simple because it was true. People walk with personality, talk with personality. Every living creature has a different personality. Yeah. <laughs> the song still, I mean, just right, I think maybe three weeks ago, there's a, a TV show in Australia. It's called Personality. Amazing. Oh, right? The NFL. Three years ago, used the song to sell their mer my merchandise. Oh my goodness! The song just goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Music History Project. If you'd like to see the videos behind these podcasts, go to nam.org/library, and there you'll find uh, the podcasts, videos, and other goodies. Awesome! Thank you. Good job, Suzanne. 
Yeah, this is really fun listening to Lloyd Price. The one thing I wanted to add is um, sort of the caveat that there were a lot of pioneers um, before and at the same time as as Lloyd Price and some of the other folks were talking about. And I just want to give a perspective. I was talking about Elvis and, and Bill Haley going back before um, Lloyd Price in 1948. Professor Longhair was recording and Fats Domino, of course, did his big first big hit called The Fat Man in 1949. So all of this was sort of the evolution of rock and roll. And it's kind of neat to pinpoint one particular point, but there were so many others that were very influential. And it's also interesting to me how many different historians are out there who all have a different opinion about what the very first rock and roll song was. Some people point to this, Lottie Miss Claudia is the very first rock and roll song. I've heard Saturday Night Fish Fry by Louis Jordan and his orchestra uh, as being the first rock and roll song. If you would like my opinion, you're certainly welcome to ask. What's your opinion? <laughs> I would you. like to know about Professor Longhair. How long <laughs> was his hair? It was, really? it was long. It had, he had a ponytail. And that was pretty, you know, bohemian back in 1948. So Rocket 88, recorded at Sun Records, um, was probably the very first rock and roll song, in my opinion. So there we go. But Lottie Miss Claudie was before it and very influential indeed. So, shall we get back to the podcast, uh, our interview with Lloyd Price? What is he going to be talking about next, Jonah? How Louisiana was the uh, foundation for rock and roll. Yeah, let's go. Well, you know Birdland. When Morris Lee had Birdland uh, in New York, uh, he had asked me as a rock and roll artist to come and do two days in Birdland. This was unheard of. A rock artist going to do... Uh, the house that Charlie Parker built. So I went down there and you couldn't get the people in. You couldn't get them in. And I always wanted to be a great musician, which I never was, still isn't. But I always wanted to be a great musician. I got a, to build a good a good relationship with Morris Levy and Oscar Goodstein. Oscar Goodstein was the manager of Birdland. One day I called Oscar and he said, Lloyd, Morris is going to give up Birdland. It's closing. And a bug went off in my head. Bang! Said, so you should take it and put a rock club in Birdland. <laughs> I did. So what I did, I was able to get the lease and build a turntable. The jazz corner of the world became Lloyd Price's turntable. From that, I was able to hire Slide Hampton, who was a great jazz trombonist with Maynard Ferguson and Frankie Dunlap. All these great jazz musicians, Grover Washington. I think Slide Hampton had the best musicians in the city because the union said that I had to have 14 men, a 14-beast band, the way I had reconstructed Birdland. I couldn't have just eight musicians, and I had to have 14. So I left that up to Slide, and he had the greatest musicians. Out of that, I recorded Misty, which went straight to the chart, went on the chart number 18. I changed the rhythm of Misty and made it, put it in a waltz jazz tempo. Look at me, pop, 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 I'm as helpless. Went straight to the chart. Now I know if that was because I was a rock and roll artist, did a jazz tune, a jazz tune with a great jazz band. But what happened, Grover Washington came on the scene. 
great organ, the, the B3. Jimmy Beca Smith? Jimmy Smith, yes. And Richard Groove Holmes. Oh, Groove Holmes he yeah. did Misty. And uh, that kind of changed what they call the, uh, 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 what do they call it? Uh, I don't, I don't want to call it a jazz invasion, but they they found out that you didn't have to do Misty the way Earl Garner did it. Oh, Johnny Mathis. You didn't have to look at... You could change that melody and put your signature on it. So I started doing that with most songs. I start swinging these ballads, and I think that changed it. And they uh, they give it a, a, a oh man, they give it a different name, but uh, that's how it all began. And when the music started changing to the big band sound, when I start using but up but up but up with the big band, the Ray Charles singers and a big brass band. Bobby Rydell, Frank Avalon, all these guys start to use that hook. And most songs that they use, Connie Francis. And when Dick Clark started the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars, I took the big, I was the big band on every show practically that he took out. And that music became the signature music on the records for maybe eight or nine years. So the music started to change within that swing with, until the disco in the early 60s. Well, I had the turntable on Broadway, so we changed from that to disco music in the turntable, where you was a, where you could record, you could be filmed. So when the disco became that, the turntable was there, and that music just kept revolving and kept, uh, I guess, improving and being on what we call today uh, adult continuum. There's so many titles to so the same music until I can't remember them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you make a point about New Orleans being a very important cornerstone of, of rock and roll. How did you compare that with like what was going on in Memphis? There's no comparison. You know, there's only one one. There's one one beginning. And it all began in New Orleans. And I have never agreed with the Hall of Fame being in Cleveland, but understand the economics and all that goes with it. Uh, the, there's no other place on earth for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame but somewhere in New Orleans. That was the beginning. Stacks and all these things came much, much later. However, they all got their own signature, like Motown got its own signature. But the beginning, the birth of all this music was in New Orleans, with Earl Palmer, Fats Domino, Dave Bartholomew, and C.J. McLean, and Otis DeVernie. These are the guys that started this stuff. And I think they should get a lot of credit. New Orleans have never gotten the credit that it should have gotten for the creation of this sound. Not just that, it, for the movement of the young people in America, perhaps even the president, Barack and Obama, the grandparents started this movement. And 10 years after Lord and Miss Claudia, Martin Luther King marched in Washington. These were the same people, same mix of folks who bought Laudamus Claudia nine years earlier. There's no way around this. This is nothing but the truth. Why Barack Obama is in the White House is because these were the grandkids of those kids who are the adults now pushed this election the way they did. All these changes came from that music, from the birth of rock and roll in New Orleans. <laughs> well said. Absolutely. Yes. Well said. 
Hey, to talk just a second about specialty, if you don't mind. I mean, that specialty has a very special part in, in, in rock music as well because of those recordings and the things that followed. And I just wondered, were you connected with the label outside of those recordings that you did? Well, the only thing I did, when I got back out of the Army, and I, why, I wanted to have my own record business. I kind of thought I was a businessman. I kind of, now know I'm 21 years old. I know what time it is. So I, I asked God Ruth to sell me back my contract, to give me back my contract. He told me he wouldn't because he had made me a commodity, but he would sell it back to me. Now, the reason why he did that is because I had sent him a kid called Little Richard. Little Richard is now on fire. Nobody on earth is bigger than Richard. I did that. I had Art Roop told him about Little Richard from Japan, Tokyo, Japan. I told him about Little Richard because he had asked me, did I know anybody like me or did I have another Lord and Miss Claudia? So I said, no, but I know of a kid in Augusta, Georgia. My little brother, Leo, would tell you how to find him and all that stuff. That's how it happened. Leo told him how to find little Richard. The art group sent Bumps Blackwell to New Orleans, and Bumps Blackwell recorded little Richard with Tutti Frutti, a good golly Miss Molly, one of the two. Little Richard got so big. Art Root only stayed in the business eight years. That was his total time in record business. He quit the record business and went into oil business. Four years ago, maybe now. I went out to Monterey, California and met with Art. I wanted to get him on tape. I'd never been angry with Art, even though he charged me $1,000 to give me back my contract. Could you imagine? That's crazy. He charged me $1,000 to release me. And uh, I had... I put him in a path of making millions and millions and millions of dollars. He was the biggest record company in America. He charged me $1,000 to give me my contract back. <laughs> now, I don't have a problem with that because if it wasn't for him, I would not have been who I was. You know what I mean? So the most I can say for Art Root is that he he does, he should, he should be commanded a lot for doing what he did. He did break down all path, all those. He was responsible because Elvis recorded Lord and Miss Claudia. He was responsible because Pat Boone of Little Richard doing Trudy Fruity. A lot of credit. He deserves and he should give it should be given to it. He was ninety-three when I last saw him. Still walking. We walked maybe several blocks to a restaurant, have lunch, still laughing, same art, and I understand he's still here. So he would be in his nineties. And God bless him. But he never got the credit he should have gotten, and neither did specialty. Did you happen to meet like Sam? I knew Sam very well. I introduced him to his first wife, Dolores, huh. who was a dear friend of mine. Sam was, a, Sam was on specialty, which is Soul Stairs. First time I met Sam, I believe, before I went to the Army, it was in 1953. And I told him to go up to Fresno and meet this girl I knew, Dolores. He married her. <laughs> yeah, so I knew Sam really well. So when I came out to service, uh, we were talking, and uh, he said, man, how do you pull all the broads? How do you pull all the fox? I said, well, you do the same thing. You just do it in church. You, <laughs> If you figure a way how you can drop the word Jesus and sing just straight 
uh, 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 ballads and straight songs, leave out Jesus, and you could do the same thing. So the rest of it is history. <laughs> Sam was amazing. He was good looking. He was a great singer, and he was sincere, and, and folks loved him. I mean, they loved Sam Cooke. He was a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine. <laughs> I'm glad I asked you about that. Yeah, I, I wondered because you guys were there at the same time. Yes. What a style. What a... Uh, there was nothing like Sam. Never will be nothing like Sam. Uh, his brother, uh, LT, uh, Jace, LC, LC. LC, yeah. LC tried, but you can't duplicate that. It's got to come from the heart and from the soul. And Sam was a, he was really what I call a soul singer. I mean, a change gonna come. I mean, you couldn't get much deeper than that. Oh. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Well said. That's fantastic. I'm just trying to think if there was anything else that. Uh, oh, um, you had mentioned uh, Pat Boone and and you know the the cover versions of songs that were going on in the early part of your career. What what were your take on that? Well, bop, bop, loo, bop, blah, bop, bop. <laughs> I thought it was almost a joke, you know. <laughs> and Pat Boone, you know, he, uh, it was amazing in those days how those songs came, but I understood it. It was all about the uh, economics of how the business worked. They figured if they record the, at that time, the country was so bad until the young kids, young white kids, couldn't take the black artists in the house. They had to buy the records from under the counter. The white record shops was not putting the records in the rack so they can go and buy it. If they wanted it, they had to buy it under the counter if they sold it. So these white artists had was recording this music. That made the purse a lot bigger for the white record companies. So I understood the whole system of how it worked. But it was not really the music. But the kids had never heard it before. They didn't know any different. They just knew that this was an, uh, an evasion of the music. And they weren't to be in that evasion. They weren't to be in that revolution. Mm. And so they bought Pat Boone. They bought all these cover records. And uh, Buddy Holly was the only original thing from that era. He was original. So Buddy got in the door. But... That music was, and then finally, the parents started allowing the kids to buy black records to come in. And as time went, all the white artists from Europe and from America got to learn how to sing this stuff and learn how to sing it with a real good feeling, found out what it really meant. So, but in the beginning, it was, it was like Roy Rogers having Trigger sing Tutti Frutti. <laughs> <laughs> it was very funny. Ugh. I mean, and yeah, I mean, even the dancers. Nobody learned. They had to learn this stuff all over. You know, it had to be something learned that was not taught at home. You know what I mean? So it was a long process of learning, but it finally now it's everything with everybody. It's all good. Right. That's a very good way of looking at it. It had to be a progression. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was definitely a progression. Like today, I don't think the clock would work against MTV. I just don't see, you know what I'm saying? That yeah. that would not work. You need MTV. 
and all the things that goes with MTV. That is the day's mark. When I recorded Lord and Miss Claudia, Louis Jordan, Roy Melton, and these guys was the king. They thought Lord and Miss Claudia was a joke compared to the music that, what is this kid talking about? Roy Brown with Good Rockin' Tonight. They all thought I was a real joke with that music. Well, I don't think that about hip hop because I happen to have been there watching the change and how to hit progress in the progression of things, how it happened. But one thing is for certain that all things are reciprocal. It's all still the same music. Every scratch on every record is the same music. It's all the same. Now, of course, there's improvs on everything, but it's all the same. And still, all that credit goes to New Orleans. <laughs> so what were your thoughts about being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? At first, I almost didn't go. I almost didn't go because Fats Domino and Lloyd Price and uh, Lil Richard and uh, Elvis, uh, when they started, the rules were, and the charter said that you had to have 25 years in a business and you had to have sold a million records. Well, all of us was qualified. I didn't get inducted until 1998. Every newspaper, when in the first induction on almost every front page, said Lloyd Price should have been the first one indicted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But again, I understood the reason and all that's because Ahmed Erdogan and Atlantic Records started this. Ahmed found the money. He, it was started in Cleveland because of Alan Freed. But Alan never recorded a record. He only played the freaking records. <laughs> there was no reason to have the Hall of Fame there. It was a good reason to talk about Alan and all the good that he did. He did have the first outdoor concert. He had 30,000 people to come because he was the moon dog. The moon dog gave the first big concert that we call now the rock outdoor concerts. So I, none of that I saw for a reason to be in Cleveland the Hall of Fame. I guess it felt okay because I had a chance to get inducted with the Mamas and the Papas and, and the Fogarty. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Credence. Yeah, the Credence. It was a, it was a great night in uh, Allen, Tucson. Oh. So we really had a good class of people getting in, inducted, and it was a wonderful, wonderful night. And Phil Spector, he was there. He didn't get inducted, but he had a lot of things that had gone on that night. At the le very last minute, I, I decided to go because Alan, Alan uh, Grubman, who was my attorney, who was then the secretary of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, I knew a lot of the folks. I had been knowing them for years. I decided not to embarrass them by not going. So I went, and that is the water up there on the, on <laughs> on the shelf. And I'm glad I went because it's a good thing to have. That part of history should always be a part of my life. And that was Lloyd Price. Um, in his final uh, thoughts that he gave, I was really intrigued and uh, just fascinated, not fascinated, but sad. I feel like sadly fascinated, if that makes sense, with the idea that um, black artists wrote songs and then the white famous white artists would cover the songs and they'd be much more popular and so and i think that's so like that's still sadly prevalent in today's 
music like you'll hear a song and be like oh that person saying it and be like no that was a cover of this person that deserves all the credit you know and so i think that was well explained by mr price and something that i just got to think heavy on hmm. well said jonah i think you know in him explaining all that like distribution and how there were some jukeboxes in uh let's say a certain bar or a certain dance hall uh only had uh african-american related records they called them race records back then and others only had white records and i think that one of the things that lloyd reflected on and very proud of is that he saw that change and there was a change maybe it's still not perfect but it's certainly uh better than it was and i think that's a very good point that you make Um, I'm really grateful for all of you uh, and this amazing opportunity to share this incredible interview with uh, Lloyd Price. My final thought is that his second career after music, although he continued to sing in specials and uh, different tours with uh, early pioneers of rock and roll, um, he really focused on providing Southern cooked food for people. Uh, so there is the Lottie Miss Cloudy sweet potato cookie that you could purchase, as well as the Lloyd Price soulful and smooth grits. So I think that should be my final thought. Well, my final thought is Lottie Lottie, I'm hungry now. <laughs> this was a great number two. Tune in next month for part three of uh, R&B Pioneers. And until then, have a good time. Toodaloo. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino, Suzanne Del Fiorentino, and Alex Rossner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.